Well, good morning. I want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church, and I want to welcome those who are joining us online at Steiner Ranch and all of our venues. Uh, we're excited to be together, and I'm curious today, how many of you love birthday parties? We got anybody that loves birthday parties? The introverts are saying, as long as it's not mine, and the extroverts are saying, especially if it's mine. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, in our family, we're adding birthdays, not years. We don't count those years anymore. We're actually adding people because we got these grandkids coming into our family, and as the grandkids come, more birthdays come. And so uh, this year, um, we were celebrating in the spring my parents' birthday, so their March-April birthday, and while we were celebrating, we had the whole family together at a restaurant, and when it came time for the desserts, you know, the obligatory pass the desserts around for grandpa's birthday, grandma's birthday, um, my granddaughter Caroline landed on my lap. Now, I want you to get the feel for, like, what cuteness really is in the world. So here's Caroline. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, like she's just gorgeous, right? Okay, so here's Caroline. Caroline is sitting on my lap. And so as the desserts are being passed around and cycling back through, I'm giving her a little bite of something sweet and she's eating it. And as soon as she finishes, she says, happy birthday. And then the next bite comes and happy birthday. And then the next bite comes and happy birthday. So clearly she's associating dessert and happy birthday. And so I started asking her, because her birthday was coming up in about three months, I started asking her, I said, now, Caroline, what are you going to have for your birthday cake? And she said, I'm going to have a big Elmo cake. And so every time I saw her, Caroline, what are you going to have for your birthday? She, I'm going to have a big Elmo cake, a big Elmo cake, a big Elmo cake. It was all about big Elmo cake. And guess what happened on her birthday? She got what she wanted. She got a big Elmo cake for her birthday. And so there she is. She sees it. She's excited about it. Now, her birthday proceeded like all birthdays go, right? We got family. We got friends. We sing happy birthday. We eat the cake. We open presents. In fact, um, I've got her on video. I couldn't show it. But she, she, pulls the, she opens the present. Here's Elmo. She pulls the big red Elmo out. She looks at it, drops it on the floor, and looks to see if there's anything else in the package. You know, then goes back and picks up Elmo. Anyway, had a wonderful, wonderful celebration of Caroline's birthday and thoroughly enjoyed it. Her birthday was like all birthdays, you know, presents and fun and food and family, just the wonderful celebration of her birthday. So when I was on sabbatical, one of the things that I was studying both in scripture and in books that I was reading and meditating on is like, how do we form? How do we get the values that we get? How do we get the patterns that we get? How do we get the thoughts that we have? Like, how do we form as a a group of people? And and we all know that experience is the best teacher. What we experience goes deep inside of us, and what we experience on an ongoing, repeated basis has profound influence for shaping our lives. One of the thoughts that went through my head is, what does the way we celebrate birthdays instill in us as a person? 
Have you ever thought about that before? Some of you would say, yeah, Tim, I think about this stuff all the time. Well, I'm a little bit behind you because I never even thought about this before. When you think about like the three days out of the year that are the most important days, right? Christmas is obviously one of those. Easter should probably be one of those, but for most kids it's probably at least third. But birthday is going to rank up there in the top one or two most important days of the year, and you celebrate it when you're two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten. Like, and we have all these traditions to celebrate birthdays, but have we ever stopped and thought, what are we actually learning about ourselves and about life and about stuff and about fun and what's real and what's not real, what are we instilling in those multitude of experiences? And you know what? I've never even thought about that. We just do it. Why do we do it? Well, all of our kids did it. I did a form of it growing up. Everybody in the culture does it. We all do the same thing. We just do it. And that becomes the rhythm of our life. And I'm curious I'm very curious if experience tends to shape us, if routine tends to shape us, are the things that we're doing, are they actually forming the image of Christ in us? Or is it possible that the things we just do and don't think about are actually deforming us? So I've entitled this message, Big Elmo Cake and Jesus. (laughs) Now I want to offer a disclaimer. Okay, right off the bat, Jesus is not anti-Elmo. Jesus is not anti-party. In fact, we see in the New Testament records of Jesus attending big events and special occasions and parties. Jesus loved joy. God made us for joy. God is fun. Jesus was fun in his lifetime. So Jesus is not against any of that. But here's the key. Here's what I want you to think about. Satan is very subtle. Satan will work in the most interesting and the most kind of unexpected ways, actually at times promising us joy, but taking away our very joy as he messes us, our minds, our behavior, our attitudes. That's why we've started a sermon series entitled uh, Being Christian in a Hostile World. Now, when it comes to hostility of the world, there are some things that are just obvious, right? There are things in our culture that just scream out loud, anti-Christian, anti-value, anti-faith, anti-Jesus, anti-relationship with God. And those are easy to spot, I mean, we see them, we feel them, we experience those. There are also some things in our culture that scream out to draw us into behaviors that are actually dangerous and damaging, that create all kinds of havoc in our lives. And those are easy to spot too. But what about the messages that are embedded in just the way we all do things, the patterns? Could it be that the hostility of the world runs deeper than we think? And we miss most of it because we're looking for the big stuff and we miss the little stuff that's normalized 
into our lives. So we dove into the study of the book of 2 Peter, and last week we looked at verses 1 through 4, and we came to understand what being Christian means. For Peter, being Christian is becoming like Jesus. It's not a set of doctrinal ideas. It's not a set of like attending church or being a nice person. It's actually taking on the very characteristics of Jesus. And in verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1, we looked at what God has done to give us the opportunity to be like Jesus. Now we're going to move into the next section of the passage where we look at how. How do we become like Jesus? And in verse 5, if you want to follow along in your Bibles... In verse 5, Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a way to live... And if you live that way, your life for Jesus will be productive. It will be valuable. It will be joyful. You'll make a difference in the world. If you don't, then you're going to have an unproductive life. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. Actually, this message is going to divide into two parts this week and next week. This week, we're going to talk about what's our part in becoming like Jesus. And next week, we're going to look at all those character qualities, those virtues, to understand what Jesus was actually like. So we want to dive in today, what's our part in becoming like Jesus? And the first thing that Peter tells us in verse 5 is that becoming like Jesus is an intentional, lifelong process of virtue formation. Now, this is a loaded statement, and we're going to go word by word through what Peter says in the Bible here, starting in verse 5. Becoming like Jesus is an intentional, lifelong process of virtue formation. In First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we read these words. He says, for this very reason... Now, that means that he's talking about something that came before. So what is it that he's talking about? Well, in verse 4 it says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. In other words, God has done everything for you that you need. He's given you the ability to actually participate in the divine nature to share in it. Now, last week we found out that the divine nature is Jesus' nature, like the way Jesus acted, what he thought, what he said, what he did, what he valued, how he lived his life. Jesus came to show us what it looks like to have an incredible, virtuous life, and that's what he showed us. And we actually get a chance to become like Jesus. Now, the flip side of that, or the contrast, he goes on in verse 4 to say, and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In other words, if you're not being formed into the image of Jesus, you're being deformed by the corrupting influences of the world where you're becoming less like Jesus and you're becoming less what God saved you and created you to be. So that's the contrast. I'm either being formed into the image of Jesus Christ or I'm being deformed into some other image 
That's a profound question. And he said, because of this, for this very reason, we're supposed to do something. Notice what he says as we move on. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. What he's saying is, is that we need to bring strenuous effort to the process of our sanctification. In other words, to be transformed requires a significant intentional investment in our lives. It doesn't just happen. And, and we know this, right? Like, we get this because we see it in all kinds of other areas of our lives. So, for example, I know a number of y'all work in the technology industry. How many computer programmers do we have in the room? A few of you? How, how many aspiring like you're a student and you're like, someday maybe that's what you want to be. You want to be a computer programmer. So what happens to become a computer programmer? Well, there's things that you have to learn and master to be effective at it, right? And so we start in middle school teaching math and you learn math skills. In high school, you're learning logic, how to think logically, sequentially. Very, very important. In addition to that, you need to actually have some problem-solving skills to be effective at computer programming. Adding to that, mastering computer languages and understanding data systems. Now, once you have all that, you can actually begin to program a computer. But for those of you who advance beyond that to actually architect, you've also got to be effective at communication writing skills, verbal skills, to be able to get these ideas into other people's minds. It doesn't just happen. It takes years of investment to master something where you can be it and do it effectively. And we get this, right? Those of you who have become elite marathon runners, all three of you, (laughs) how do you do that? Like some of you actually have signed up and showed up and said, oh, I didn't get, I didn't get around to work, and, wow, but how, how hard can this 26.2 miles be? <laughs> and now you know. You may have permanent injuries because of it, right? Because there are things you have to have, right? You've got to have training and physical stamina. You've got to understand things like pacing, hydration, nutrition, recovery, and then repeat that daily until you develop into somebody who can do that. These are things that require effort to become or be transformed into something that you want to be transformed into. Now, some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but those are like life things. I thought character and spiritual things, I thought God just did that. You know, like when I put my trust in Jesus, somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit would just come down from heaven and just zap me, and I would automatically become like this. And I know it's easy for us to think that, but it's important to understand that God is actually inviting us into a privileged partnership with Jesus. In other words, God's not taking your personality and your decision-making and your wiring and your life itself and just kind of taking you out of the equation and while you're sitting silently just like drops all of this into you and you just become this against your will. That's not what God does. He actually invites us to join him and be part of the shaping process. I want to show you 
this incredible privileged partnership, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, interesting word, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we have a part in this. On a day-to-day basis, we work it out into our lives, into our thoughts, into our actions, into our words, while God is actually playing the other part. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, while you're working it out in the decisions, choices, and activities of your life by making every effort to be like Jesus, God is actually working in you to transform you, and there's this incredible, beautiful partnership. Now, if you say, well, you just gave me one verse, I could give you so many where the Bible tells us that we are responsible for our spiritual growth. We have a part to play. Let me just give you two more. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes, since we have these promises, those are what God gave us, dear friends, let us purify ourselves, that's our work, from everything that contaminates both the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Like we actually get a chance to show our love for God by living our lives in such a way that we're growing to become like Jesus. Here's one more, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, in other words, there's a whole bunch of people that have already gone before us, that are in heaven before us, who've actually engaged in this incredible privileged partnership, and they've become like Jesus and done great things in the world, and they're cheering for you right now. He goes on to say, let us throw off everything that hinders Whatever's hindering, holding us back, and the sin that so easily entangles us, and watch this, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. God's already marked out the path of your life so that you can make an impact for the kingdom, like a special course for you to be on, and he invites you to choose, to decide, to bring your effort to the table, to invest, to grow and learn and experience and move forward as you become more like Jesus. It's an intentional process. He goes on to say, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. That phrase, to add, implies it's also an ongoing, lifelong process. It's a lifelong process that God's calling us to engage in. This word add is a really interesting word in the Greek. Uh, The root word from which this word comes from is koregos, from which we get our word choreography. Now, who was the koregos? In the Greek cities, most of them had a dance troupe that was part of performing within the cities. And the Korogos was the benefactor. The Korogos was the wealthy individual that would supply them, pay their salaries, 
pay for their training, a place to practice, get their costumes, pay for those, pay for the performances so that the city could have their own beautiful dance troupe to bring joy to the city. So what does a Korygos do? A Korygos is lavish in providing everything necessary for something beautiful to exist. And here's what Paul is saying. I mean, Peter's saying. Peter's saying this. Like, add to, like a, a Korygos, you, you bring all of your resources, your time, your, your focus and attention. You bring your gifts you bring your path, you bring all of that into a process of transformation. And that's an ongoing thing. You're willing to extravagantly invest your life in this process of producing something beautiful, which is the image of Christ, the very activity of Christ in you. What an incredible lifelong mission and calling. That every day of your life, you're intentionally growing to become like Jesus. And the world now can see the beauty of Jesus in the everyday person that's a follower of Jesus. That's what Peter's telling us to do. Now, the, the process by which Peter tells us to do that is by developing virtue. He says again, we're still in one verse, right? For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And he goes on with six more. In other words, there are eight characteristics in this passage that we're supposed to put into practice. And as we put into practice, we become more like Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to spend the whole time talking about these eight characteristics, these virtues, and what they look like. But today, I want to talk about what is a virtue, because virtues are almost lost in the way we think about life in our culture today. Most of us in our culture today are coming at our behavior, how we choose to behave, based on one or of two models of thinking. And so I, I want you to think about which one of these two most reflects the way you choose how you're going to behave. The first model is the model of rule-keeping, obligation, duty. In other words, you set out to find out what's right and wrong, and you want to do the right, and you don't want to do the wrong, and you work hard even if it's something that you, like, you don't like. Like, I'm going to do this, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing. That approach to life primarily happens in the thinking, in our heads. We have a command, and we have a decision to make. In this situation, am I going to obey it, or am I not going to obey it? It's primarily something that's happening here. Just honestly, to, to be honest, that's my general wiring. My general wiring is to try to think of what's best and like do the right thing, even if I don't want to do it. What's popular, what's problematic with that is if you travel a path of obligation and duty, you tend to run into some roadblocks. For, for example, my brain can't keep all the right rules in my head. And you're probably in the same boat. So what if you forget or miss something along the way? Then, like, you do the wrong thing. And now, oh, no. Because if you do the wrong thing and break the rules, then what do you do there? You're kind of stuck because you're not who you want to be. But if you do keep the rules, if you do follow through on that, the temptation of looking down on other people, pride, like, I keep the rules, you don't. I do the right thing, you don't. I'm better than you. 
judgmentalism, it's easy to set in. If you regularly find yourself frustrated why other people are not doing right, chances are you're one of those rule keepers, okay? Uh, the, The most extreme form of that is moving into legalism. Now, there's another approach that's very popular today, and that approach is that you base your behavior on doing you. Like you say, life is not going to be about somebody else telling me what to do. I'm going to discover myself. I'm going to find my path. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to go after. Like, what's me? I'm not going to do what other people want. I'm going to do what I want. The you-do-you mentality, or I'm going to do me mentality, is primarily sourced in the feelings. Like, what I feel I like, or what I feel I want, or who I feel I want to be, that's the way I decide how I behave. The challenge with that is, are feelings reliable? And what if you look inside and you find that the real you, like the real you at the core, is petty, or cowardly, or selfish, or bitter, or mean, or apathetic? What do you do then? If that's the source, is you, and you're not perfect, then what comes out of that is not going to be good. So we've got the feelings, we've got the thinking, neither one of those reflect the whole human being as God has created us to be. What I'm going to commend to you today, which comes right out of this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, is a concept called virtue. And virtue is what Jesus had and what participating in the divine nature actually looks like. And to understand virtue, I'm going to share a story with you to try to get you a feel for what this feels like. And so, many of us will remember, not off the top of our head, but we'll remember Thursday, January 15, 2009, when the city of New York started a normal day, and by the end of the day, everybody was calling what happened on that day a miracle. Like a miracle happened today. But the question is, did a miracle really happen? The events of that day were as follows. At 3.30 in the afternoon, a flight took off from Newark, New Jersey, headed to Charlotte, North Carolina, and as the flight took off, two minutes into the air, a flock of geese hit the, hit the engines, and both of the engines were immediately damaged. Damaged to the point where they would, would fail. And the pilot, many of you know who I'm talking about right now, Captain Sully, or Captain, Su- Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilot, had just minutes to decide what to do. Now, there were two airports, small airports, up ahead of them as they were flying over the Bronx, which is the most densely populated part of New York City, and they asked the question, can we make it? And they immediately decided they couldn't make it. The second option was to put the plane down on the New Jersey Turnpike at 3 o'clock in the afternoon as rush hour traffic was just beginning. And the third option was to land on the Hudson River. Now, anybody who knows anything about aviation or flying knows that a water landing with a craft like that is almost impossible to do. Like, you've got to get everything right, 
And if you hit the water in any kind of off way, at any kind of certain speed, you're going to have trouble. The plane will typically break up and sink with the passengers in it. They opted for number three. Now, what they did in those two plus minutes, about two and a half minutes, what they did was a series of things that I can't remember them all, so I'm going to read them to you so you can get a feel for what happened. In the two or three minutes they had before landing, Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to do the following vital things. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide as long as possible without power. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. Then they had to activate the ditch system, which seals the vents and valves, to make the plane as waterproof as possible once it hit the water. Most importantly of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so that it could come down facing south. And they had to do this because they had to go with the flow of the water in the river. Okay? And having already turned the engines off, they had to do all of this using only battery-operated systems and the emergency generator. Then, once they had made the bank, they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side. Finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too much, and land flat, straight, on the surface of that moving water. And guess what happened? They did. It happened. In fact, Captain Sullenberger made a couple uh, passes up and down the plane to make sure everybody got out, and then once he saw that everybody was out, he went and got in one of the life rafts and immediately took off his shirt and wrapped it around a freezing passenger in the January weather. As far as he was concerned, this was his plane, and he was responsible for these lives, and he took care of them right to the end. Now, many people say, well, that had to be a miracle. That had to be a miracle. I love what N.T. Wright says when he's talking about this particular event in his book, After You Believe. Here's what he says. He says, virtue in its strictest sense is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then, on the thousandth and first time, when it really matters, they find that what they do is required, but automatic. And so we say miracle. But it wasn't a miracle. It came from a lifetime of training and development, which not only gave the knowledge and the skill to perform the functions, but the calm and coolness of character to be able to do it without losing focus because every second counted. 
Every second counted. You see, Captain Sullenberger was not born with the ability to fly. That would have been his first nature. Like if he was born with the ability to fly, that, that would have been like his first nature. Neither are you born with the ability to fly. But because of what he did, the repetitive practice of the right things, it prepared him for what we would call a miracle, but actually it was the execution of the plan that he knew had to be in place. And by doing that, we say, this has now become second nature to him. Now let me compare that to spiritual virtues. Jesus' first nature was the godliness that we are called to live. It's not first nature to us. But from the time we come into the faith, we're called to live it out in such a way that it actually becomes second nature to us. It becomes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we talk, the way we act. And you say, Tim, is that really possible? Well, that's what Peter is telling us. This is actually possible if you make every effort to add these virtues in your life in the way you live. In other words, we could say that virtue functions like this. Virtue seeks to understand what is best and to embody the best in your normal actions. What you think and feel become congruent with what is best over time, and that's what Jesus has called us to do, to think and understand that he is best, and what Jesus did embodies the best in normal actions and activities of our day. And that's what we're called to live out. Now the question is, how do we do that? And I want to commend to you a couple things related to virtue. Virtues are formed by developing habits and mirroring models. In other words, if you just think that virtues are formed by thinking correctly or by feeling correctly, you will miss the whole point here. He's saying make every effort. This is an intentional investment. He's saying add to. This is building a lifestyle that moves us forward. And the most profound thing that shapes the way you will be is what you will do. That's why Jesus didn't say think your way into godliness. Jesus said act your way into it. Remember those bracelets back in the day? People wore them. WWJD. They didn't say WWJT. What would Jesus think? It's WWJD. What would Jesus do? Okay. Habits, the way we live, and the models that we aspire to. Now, let's take those two separately. Let's start with habits. The patterns by which we live every day actually shape us more than we could ever imagine. Now, we, we think they don't. We think we're doing something to our habits, but they actually are forming us. So what you do when you get up in the morning every day has a profound effect on how you'll see the rest of your day. Powerful. And you don't even know it. Just like this is the way you think about the world because this is what you do on a regular basis. 
And that's why habits and examining what our routines are is profoundly important. And it's counterintuitive. I've been reading a lot on kind of how people are shaped and how people change. And I believe that God actually created us a certain way. So you can look at how people are shaped and how they change and understand when you read the Bible, the Bible is telling us similar things. But the counterintuitive nature is, here's what we think. So students, we think this. We think that people that are wired to be conscientious are the ones that tend to do their homework, right? Like if you have that wiring, then you just do your homework. Like people that do homework just naturally do it, right? Here's what they've studied. As they've taken students that don't do their homework and would not be considered conscientious because when they do the studies of how they act, they just don't have that sense of being aware of what they're doing and how it affects themselves in their future. And given them study routines and worked with them to develop those routines, guess what happens? They start testing higher and higher and higher and higher for conscientiousness that characteristic or that virtue is being formed in them by what they're doing. We think that people that are good at something just came by it naturally. And what Scripture's teaching us and what we learn from the world around us is a lot of it has to do with how we live our daily lives, what our habits are. So I go on my sabbatical, and I'm really trying to understand, like, how profoundly is my day shaping me. And so I did some things that were kind of interesting along the way. The first thing I did was cut off all social media. So I'm I'm not going to look or touch social media. And then I went the next step. I got rid of the news. I got rid of the stock exchange. And I got rid of sports. (laughs) Actually, the only thing my phone was good for is if Cindy needed me and texted me like, we were going someplace, we were doing something, like that was all my phone was good for. So like I actually didn't carry it around with me much because like what do you do if it doesn't distract you all day long? And so like I'm going through my day now and the first thing that happens when you break a habit, something that you do regularly, is your brain screams out, stop it. Go back to the way you were before. Young people, you, you tend to call that feeling that when your brain is saying, no, 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 that's not how we do things. You call that awkward. I feel awkward. You actually physiologically feel awkward because the patterns that you develop through your habits actually wire certain neural pathways in your brain and your brain gets used to that and it's easy. So if you isolate yourself regularly and then you're thinking about going out around people and your brain starts going, no, 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 there's actually chemical reactions that are telling you not to and you think you don't want to or you don't feel good about it, but that can actually change. You don't have to get stuck there. That can actually be different. So anyway, I'm telling God, I'm saying, you know, I talk to you in the morning when I pray. I talk to you at night when I pray. Sometimes during the day I stop and talk to you, but why don't you talk to me more? And God said to me, when? When? There's not a moment during your day when you're not occupied with noise. Like, if there's nothing going on, you check to see what's going on. The other thing that he said is, where's the worship? I was like, well, 
the worship went out a few years ago because like, I want to take advantage of every moment to fill my head with as much information as possible. So when I'm exercising, I'm listening to books on tape. When I get in the car, I want to see what the crazy city council in Austin's doing. Like I, like I, I am listening to voices all day long, and he said, you're not listening to me because I'm talking. And you have a full head of other voices. And so... Rather than listening to books, I started listening to worship. You know what happened? Like throughout the day, these songs are coming back into my heart. And God's speaking to me. And I'm hearing him. And I'm having these conversations with him. But what did I have to do? I had to change my habits. Because my habits, what I did, was getting in the way of who I wanted to be. What you're choosing to do with your time that becomes habitual is either forming you into the image of Christ or it's deforming you into the image of the world. So that's why developing the habits of a godly life of these virtues will actually change you to become virtuous. The second profound thing is mirroring models. Who are you looking to to tell you what you want to be? And are you acting like that model? So here's what's so profound. All the research shows that if you do an if-as conversation and then act like the if-as so, for example, they took one group of people that had a lot of social anxiety, didn't like to go out, and be around people, and they ask the question, who's the, who's the person that's the most social that you know in your life that you actually like? And they all picked somebody, and they said, well, think about, like, what would they do? And one of the guys wrote down, well, they would call their friends and invite them to lunch. So why don't you think about, like, that's what they would do, so go do it. Not go think it until you started feeling like doing it, but just go do it. And what they found was, is people at, by the end of 10, 10 lunches with the 10 friends that they called and had lunch with, what happened is, like, it's real awkward to call, I don't know what to say, real weird at lunch, to by the end, this is great. They actually started scoring high on the extroverted scale. You don't have to live as a procrastinator. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live as a person that is wired and wound up so tightly that you hate yourself as much as everybody else hates you. You don't have to live that way. That's not what we were created to do. You actually can become like Jesus if you begin to look to Jesus. If you begin to look to Jesus and ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? And then go do that in the patterns of your life. I don't know how many of you saw the bombshell that dropped this week. The Wall Street Journal actually published an internal slide deck that was made in a presentation to the leadership or the executives at Facebook about the impact of Instagram on girls. The slide deck had a slide that says, 
In our research, we know that one in three girls that spends time on Instagram has body image issues. And they specifically say Instagram makes them feel bad about their body. One in three. A UK study studied girls and they noted that 16% of the girls that are looking at those photoshopped images or body-altered images that people are posting on their Instagram or the perfect picture of themselves in the perfect light with the perfect makeup, 16% are having suicidal ideation, thinking about taking their life after looking at this. What's happening? Like, there's nothing sinful about Instagram. Like, there's no command about Instagram, but when you look at something over and over and over again and you keep looking and every day you're looking and all, it can become the model. Like, I guess I have to be like that or nobody's going to like me. I guess I have to look like that or I'm no good. It's damaging us. And the average parent would look at somebody's phone and go, well, I don't see anything immoral on there. It's not the immoral on there. It's what are you putting your mind around and how do those images or how do those ideas, whether you're looking at the stock market or your favorite news source or like anything that you do on a regular basis, how is that actually shaping you? Big Elmo cake. What are we telling our kids on their birthdays? We're just telling them the same thing that everybody tells their kids, right? What are you doing in your routine all day? What am I doing? I'm just doing what everybody else does. But everybody else is not Jesus. Here's what's so incredible. When God wanted us to be able to know how to live, Jesus came, took on flesh so that we could actually see a model so we could know what this looks like. That's how much God loves you. He came and even showed you how to live life. And so here's my challenge. I want you to think about two things this week. The first one is, like, what do you do every day when you get up? On Monday morning, what do you do? What do you do all day? What do you do in the evenings? What do you do each day of the week? Like, what does that look like? Is that forming you into the image of Jesus? Is it deforming you? Second, I really want you to look at Jesus, asking the question, what would Jesus do today? Like, what does that look like? And I would encourage you this week, read the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel just read the Gospel of Mark and just look at what Jesus is doing. His attitudes, his words, things that are important to him, where he puts his time and energy. Just look at that and say, what would it look like for me to begin to incorporate that into my experience? Now, I realize that stepping out of what's normal in the culture for teenagers, for young adults, for grandparents, like stepping out of that and being different is hard to do alone. That's why we as the church have been called to be a family so that we can actually begin to do things different than the culture around us and get encouragement and support from one another. 
That's why things like small groups are so important. Our student ministry is so important for people to be able to come together and go, what are you doing about this? This is so distracting to me. And they, they're saying, well, I've changed. I'm, I'm practicing this different habit now. Well, man, I'm going to try practicing that habit. But if I do, I'm going to be so weird because when I'm hanging out with my friends, they're all going to say, why aren't you doing this? At least I'll know there's somebody that's trying a different way. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be, a family of people that are supporting each other as we live a different kind of life. And what will happen is all of a sudden people will start realizing, wow, the way you're living is so much better because it's the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is always better than the way of the world. So my prayer is that today each of us would do an evaluation of our habits. What do we do? What are our routines? What are they doing to us? And, and am I looking to Jesus to be my model? And is there community that I'm getting close to people that are encouraging me to live a unique way? I believe that we have a chance to become like Jesus in our life, every single one of us do. That's why God saved us. And we'll talk more about what that looks like next week. But I want you to get started this week. Let me bow, let's bow our heads. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much that we have the opportunity, the privilege to participate in the divine nature, to join you in your work on us, to become virtuous like your son, that Jesus' way may become second nature to us. And I know we all have a lot, a lot to do, a lot of formation still ahead of us, but we joyfully enter that knowing that you've called us, you never leave us and forsake us, and your way is always the way of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.